0: It's our Starting Pitcher episode, part one. We'll talk strategies, undervalued players, mailbag, and much, much more. Alex Chamberlain of Fangraphs joins us next on Beat the Shift. Welcome to another episode of the Beat the Shift podcast. Presented by Fangraphs, I am your host Ariel Cohen, and with me, as always, is Ruvain Guy. How are you, Ruvain? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? Not too bad. We had a beautiful day in New York yesterday. It almost was 70 degrees in the middle of February. Was it? Was it as warm for you up uh, in northern uh, New York?
1: Yes, it was. But there's snow in the forecast tonight. Another possible three to six inches. So the winter is not over. Oh
0: man. Well, hopefully it'll be spring soon. Hopefully the baseball lockout will get settled. Uh, I'm not in charge of that, but uh, hopefully they'll do it. We've got a great show tonight, and uh, we have on, uh, oh, from Fangraphs, uh, he was Baseball Writer of the Year 2018. I've played a couple leagues with him in Taut Wars. Welcome to the show, Alex Chamberlain.
2: Hey, hey guys, thanks for having me.
0: By the way, did you know, Alex, that you were actually our very, very first guest on Beat the Shift when we were over at the TGFBI podcast? Do you remember that?
2: I was first. I remember being pretty early back first. Wow, really okay, cool. We were the one number 1st nice. guest. We bring couldn't it full think circle of any-
0: then. Yes, we couldn't think of anybody better to bring on as our first and uh thank you for coming back on the show. It's been all
2: uphill from from there, I'm sure. <laughs> there, there you go. <laughs> so,
0: uh we're going to talk pitchers. Uh we are pitchers obviously can't be covered in one episode. So, a little bit of a split episode. This is part 1. And we'll start with a little bit of strategy here. And first of all, if anybody hasn't seen it yet, Alex has created a pretty nifty pitching tool. Uh, Do you want to explain uh, what that is and how people can go on there, see it, what it's all about and use it and all that?
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, it's on – I host it on Tableau because it's a dynamic tool and I don't know how to do – uh, like website coding or anything like that and tableau is just an easy way for me to visualize stuff but the the tool itself is a pitch comparison tool and and basically what it does is it takes like uh, the myriad uh, specs from a pitch you know the, the velocity the the spin rate the release point um, the you know, uh, the movement excuse me I was like looking for uh, what other important things there are and and, and and other elements of a pitch too and it, it takes all that stuff and Um, it calculates basically compared to all other pitches, um, which pitches are uh, the most similar according to those specs. And using that information, you can rank, uh, or just like resort uh, the list of pitches from closest to farthest. And then uh, with that information, it'll show you for each pitch, how that pitch performs. So uh, you can take, I think it defaults right now to uh, Corbin Burns's cutter. Uh, You can, you can look at the comps, uh, the pitch comparisons for for Cor- Corbin Burns' cutter and see uh, that the pitches that are closest to it uh, are, are spectacular. Uh, and so uh, you can kind of use it, uh, the, the way I like to use it is for pitchers who have uh, small samples. Um, and I have a hard time evaluating pitchers in small samples because you'll see a couple starts. Uh, again, I just go, by nature, it's a small sample, so it's volatile. Um, And it's kind of hard to weed out the noise and kind of hone in on a signal. So I will go to my pitch comps tool um, and uh, pull up a pitcher like Shane Boz, um, who only threw, I think, like 11 innings last year. Uh, And I'll go and compare his fastball to other pitches. And I'll compare his his slider or whatever else he throws. um, And I'll see that his fastball is a lot like Garrett Coles. And it's a lot like uh, Jacob deGrom's. And I can take that information and kind of have... Uh, kind of an actionable idea about what to do with that small sample you know i think uh, a projection system can do a lot with results even in a small sample but to know um you know like the the fastball performed well and it's valid that it performed well by by comparing it to pitches that are very similar to that and those pitches also performed well it's just kind of like a, a way to externally validate things that i'm seeing with my eyes and also things that are occurring in small samples I'm finding it very helpful to uh, evaluate pitchers who have kind of popped up or, you know, rookies who we don't have a lot of Major League Baseball uh, data for um, to kind of help me get a better sense of how I feel about this pitcher without being, without kind of just throwing up my hands and saying, well, it's a small sample. I can't do anything with that.
0: Is this Major League experience only that that's on the tool? Like it's bars in the small sample size?
2: Uh yes yeah. so it it just uses the specs from Statcast and Statcast is only Major League um, right you know it's only in the Major League ballparks I guess technically it's in some single A parks now but but primarily I'm only using um, MLB data so you know once someone debuts I can finally like look at their specs on their pitches I can run it through that that tool and I can get a sense for like who you know how good are these pitches um, by comparing it to pitches that are similar to it.
0: Right? How do you how do you compare a a similar pitch? Like how how do you uh, pop up that all of a sudden Shane Bos? Oh, the comp is Degrom and Cole. Like how how does that actually work?
2: Uh, Well, currently the the calculation uses Euclidean distance, which is neither here nor there for someone who doesn't really care for the math. But you know, it's basically just taking uh, a bunch of different variables or a bunch of different. Um, elements of a pitch so again like the velocity and but it's taking all of that and it is like a, a kind of like a, you know it, it's like uh, the, the Pythagorean theorem is the distance between uh, two of the you know two of the, the corners of a triangle right um, the long side of the triangle it's basically like Pythagorean theorem but like for way more points and kind of like in a, in a much larger multi-dimensional space um, trying to find which pitches are closest mathematically like uh you know if pitches uh boz has uh you know a, a pretty good velocity and um certain kind of like movement uh characteristics and and release point characteristics and it's going to look at all the pitches that are closest in that sense so like if he has uh you know a high and i'm not talking about boss specifically now but if someone has like a high arm slot or a low arm slot plus uh lower velocity plus uh, a, a an above average movement profile is going to find pitches that are similar to that um, through mathematics basically
1: and how can we use this tool to find undervalued fantasy pitchers that cuz that's what everyone wants to know everyone wants to get into the pitcher before there are big things how can we use mm-hmm. it for this
2: yeah so i so a lot of times like i i will look at a pitcher i will go to a pitcher first and look at his comps um, so I will go to like someone like Shane Boz and I'll run through all of his different pitches in the pitch comps tool and be like, okay, this is how his fastball looks compared to other pitches. This is how uh, his changeup looks. But you could also do kind of like a reverse uh, engineering approach, which is like, okay, let's go comp uh, Jacob deGrom's fastball and see which pitchers are closest according to that. Or let's go comp uh, like Shane Bieber's knuckle curve and see which pitches are closest to that. And so you could take some of the game's best uh, and most elite pitches, uh, you know, like a a manual place, class A, um, uh, uh, not splitter, but a cutter, um, or power sinker, um, and uh, run it through the tool and say, okay, these are pitches that are are most similar to that pitch, and kind of get a better idea of, um, you know, you could could probably find a pop-up guys that way um, by looking at the best pitches and seeing which random names uh, show up, you know, kind of in elite company that way.
0: Right. Yeah, we, we had Brian Bannister on the show uh, uh, earlier in the week, and uh, that's what he does. He looks and sees what the great pitchers in baseball do and tries to, you know, add that kind of mechanic with his pitchers. I mean, that's really that's really what you want to do. So, you know, if you see Shane Boz looks great, right now ATC values him as a $13 player in 5x5 five five Roto. How does that affect your score? Are you bumping up his strikeouts? Are you— bumping down his era like what what would you do procedurally to say okay i like shane boz and i've got better information how how would that actually you know how would you use that in practice to affect the price you'd pay for him
2: yeah yeah so so shane boz specifically um i'd have to look at his projections i i'm actually somewhat surprised that they're as as bullish as they are because he had uh, a long run of high walk rates and he finally cleaned up his mechanics just by virtue of pitching only from the stretch which is pretty incredible that he had such a cleanup. Um, I think uh, he's always ran high strikeout rates in the minors, and so, um, you know, his his ERAs, I'm looking at his ratios right now in fangrafts they're pretty good for a projection system, so I think there's, oh, yeah. there's uh, you know, uh, I think that the projection systems are doing a good job of being as bullish as I am, I think there's uh, maybe a volume concern there, but he also has a volume concern, so I think, um, you know, if you looked at him on a per-inning basis, he would probably look like one of the, I would guess like one of the fifteen best pitchers, starting pitchers, excuse me, in baseball. Um, of course, with only 124 innings per ATC, um, he's not going to quite make it that high. Um, but I think he's like the 36th, 36th pitcher off the board or something. I mean, he's that's kind of like a, a nice juncture where you can start pivoting from quantity to quality. Um, you know, guys who are going to give you very high quality innings at that juncture uh, in a draft, you can start replacing them. Um, you know, with with some of the depth that you draft later or, or off the waiver wire, and not not really have a, a significant opportunity cost. You know, if he if he gets shut down early or if he um, runs into some injury trouble. So, um, but with other guys, you know, I I might look at. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of projection systems might be very outcome oriented, so there might be an opportunity to kind of like arbitrage there where you see, um, yeah, you know, like he this projection system is still kind of factoring in that Camilo Doval, uh, did not tweak his mechanics, you know, in August, uh, Tristan McKenzie, uh, also did not. Twist, uh, you know, a uh, projection system might say Tristan McKenzie did not tweak his mechanics um, after he came up um, from his demotion early last year uh, and then stopped walking guys. So, you know, there's there's, there's moments where, like, the projection system will see, uh, you know, two different guys um, uh, in one season and say, you know, both of those guys are, you know, a true, a true part of him, whereas, uh, you know, mechanical adjustments like that will get lost. And you can find that... Um, uh, by running like those numbers through the pitch comp tool. I don't have the granularity right now to be able to be like, okay, do it from this date range kind of thing. Like what does is, what is Camilo Duvall look like from August onward? Um, but it's something I'd like to add in. And that way you can kind of get a sense for how has this pitch improved um, from prior to that mechanical adjustment to after. So um, I would say generally there's probably not too much actionable information. I do think it's really helpful for, for people who are struggling to develop opinions about guys who uh are are just debuting who don't have a lot of major league data, um, it's kind of helpful to get a sense for like what that their arsenal or the repertoire really looks like.
0: Uh, great stuff. And and obviously for established people, I think the project the projections do a great job, but of course in the people with not that much experience, that's a blind spot of projections. So that's a great asset that, that you have here. And you know, speaking of volume, you mentioned uh, you're not sure of the volume. You know, one thing that I've seen in fantasy baseball over the past couple years is the volume question of the pitchers who pitch the most innings, they're worth the most, right? And we used to have tons of pitchers who would meet the 200-inning threshold for the year. We don't really have that many this year. Question to you is, who are the pitchers this year that you think are going to make the most? I mean, last year, Zach Wheeler led all of baseball with 213 innings. Walker Buehler, 207. Two others had a more than 200, which was Wainwright and Alcantara. Look at that, Wainwright over 200. But uh, who do you think are the best bets to make over 200 innings for the year?
2: Yeah, I mean, if I had to pick someone to be Wheeler, like if I had to just place my money on one horse, um, I think, um, gosh, I mean, uh, maybe someone like Garrett Cole has been mostly healthy for his career. Um, Kyle Hendricks has been mostly healthy, although he wasn't working efficiently last year and, and got hit around. Um, he usually comes close; he's usually like 180, 190, um, so maybe not two hundred for him. Um, someone like Luis Castillo is always putting up volume, um, but I, man, I try not to think. I try not to think too much about it because I've 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 drafted pitchers before on the premise of them being uh, healthy. <laughs> Or, or, or guaranteeing me volume and having them get injured. Um, so it's always, it's a little bit of a fool's errand. I mean, the truly the pitcher who is most likely to give you the most innings is the one who's been the healthiest and the most likely to give you innings in the past. Uh, and at the same time, if you had some kind of like, uh, I want to, I think it's a, a survivor model or a hazard model, model, I can't remember, but a hazard model might tell you that the guy who has been the healthiest longest is also probably the one who, um, is most due for and due in, in loose? Well, mileage, due for an right? In, yeah, right, right. Well, mileage due, on most the arm, due, right? In air quotes, most due for an injury. So it's really hard to play that game where you're like, well, he's been the healthiest, but also like, he had right, he has the most mileage on his arm, so he could get injured by virtue of being so healthy previously. So it's really hard for me to like reconcile that. Um, so yeah. I, I try not to lean too much into innings. I do think if I was gonna like make a decision in a deeper league, I would, I would think about Zach Wheeler up front because I think he might give me 190 innings, almost no doubt. you know. But I, I don't want to guarantee that to myself uh, or, or give myself a false sense of security because there, there truly is none.
0: Sure. And, and for fantasy, it's important because it's, it's, more, it's, it's not only important whether you pitch a large number of innings for the year, but per start. Because if you want to get a win, the best thing you can do is stay in the game longer. To give your your you know you the chance like to take a guy like, um, uh, what's his name on uh, Seattle uh, Marco Gonzalez, he has earned like one of the most number of decisions over the past three years, and that's because he gives depth he pitches seven innings a game so uh, it is important to do it uh, Ruvane what, what are your thoughts uh, you know w- w- we drafted in Raslam our first starter Zach Wheeler on the premise that hey he's going to pitch the longest he's going to get some of those decisions and in a points league those wins and innings are worth quite a lot and we were very happy to take them in the third round what about you what are your thoughts on the 200 inning pitchers for this year
1: for this year, I don't think anyone's going to get it, especially if the season starts late. So I don't think that's going to be attainable. I, I, I think maybe it's going to be like a 180-plus type pitcher. Um, and there are a couple names. I mean, you mentioned Wheeler. You mentioned Cole already. Um, but two guys who also are little—they're they're mid-range. One is a mid-range guy, and one is a guy off of a lot of people's radar. Lance Lynn. Lancelin is a, is a compiler. He's thrown 200 innings three times in his career. He's 34. I'm not saying he can't do it again, but he just goes out there and he just keeps chucking and chucking and chucking. Another guy who always throws a lot of innings, and it's surprising because of what team he plays for, but that's Herman Marquez. Surprisingly enough, he throws so many innings. Last year he threw 180 innings. He's thrown 196 before. He threw 174. So even though that ERA is not the prettiest, he will give you a lot of innings. So if you want innings eaters, or you want try to get some quality stars. I don't know how many quality stars you're gonna get out of him, not that many, but He's a guy. He's a compiler, and if and if you're that's what you're looking for, that's great. But last year there were only four pitchers that did it. In 2019, fifteen pitchers did it, and in 2018, thirteen pitchers did it. So it's there's a trend that it is going down. It may be because of a combination of the middle relievers coming in. It could be a combination of the broken season of t- 2020 not having a full season. This year may not even having a full season. We don't even know yet. So there are a lot of things that play into it, but there are. Player pitchers who have in their contract incentives to go 200 innings whether or not the managers will let it whether or not the the organizations will let it that's a whole different issue
0: i'll throw in jose barrios uh pitches for toronto toronto does currently does not have a great great bullpen um maybe they'll change that with some free agent signings once we resume but uh jose barrios he was finished third last year that's another interesting option to do that um Let's go to draft strategy, and we're probably going to ask that of our next guest as well because everyone has their own strategy. But, you know, let's start really generally, Alex. And when you come into a, a – let's talk Roto. Obviously, it's it's going to be different for different formats. If we're talking head-to-head that you and I uh, had played in before, we are talking about pitcher volume, innings, very important. Um, but for Roto, the, what we usually talk about here – what is your very general starting pitcher strategy of what you want to do, and maybe talk both in an auction and versus versus the draft, snake draft?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I I think the the strategy will apply generally and to starting pitchers, but I actually usually you know I'll look at ADP um, for for a, a snake, but also for, for an auction because you can you can kind of get a, a sense of the you know the the. The salary for a pitcher based on his ADP. Those should be pretty strongly related. But um, you know, I'll go to ADP and I'll start from the bottom, uh, and I'll, I'll work my way backwards. And I want to get a sense of which pitchers I like where at certain junctures in the draft. And I don't really want to make this about the validity of ADP. Um, you know, my, my kind of like my fundamental idea about ADP is they are they price tags. And if you walk into uh, a store with two hundred and sixty dollars to spend on food and you're ignoring price tags then you're not going to get the best deals it doesn't matter what you think about the prices um whether they're good or fair or whatever um if you walk into a, a store a grocery store 260 dollars you and and you're ignoring price tags you're not going to get the best bang for your buck so i'm looking at adp and i'm trying to get a sense of which especially for pitchers, which pitchers i like later in the draft and i, I want to have an idea of of how many there are available i want an idea of where they're showing up during the draft. And of course, all of this is, is kind of relative to what I think their earnings power is going to be. So like if, you know, I, I'm, I'm looking at guys who I like, but obviously I want them to be um, affordably priced too so I can try to, do, to generate the strongest ROI. So I'm, I'm creating kind of, I even, I'm not even a mental list, but an Excel list. I have a, a draft tool that I've created for myself. And I'm, I, I, I watch all of those guys and I make sure that I have a, an eye on which rounds they're going in or or, or what dollar value they're going for. Um, and as I get closer to the top of my draft, then I have a better idea of, okay, which, which aces or, or kind of like 1A uh, or even tier 2 pitchers would I, would I be comfortable taking? And that really forced the issue. Um, but, you know, which ones would I be most comfortable taking? How, how comfortable am I missing some of my targets and being able to supplement with some of the guys later in the draft, knowing where they're going to be coming? And really, kind of threading that needle and not screwing that up because I'm I'm aware and cognizant of when they're gonna to pop up in the draft. So I always start from the back, and I and I you know draft backwards is is what um, Brian Slack called it once from Baseball HQ. It was drafting backwards, and I do that with pitchers, and I do that with all all my players.
0: Yeah, I all good advice. I think I'd add to that that it's also important on the uh, the pockets. Well, I guess it's hot spots where you have not just one or two, but three or four pitchers that you like in a certain spot of the draft, because let's say it's the 15th round and you say, you know what, there's like four pitchers that I like that is on average going there, you can be assured that at least one of them will appear there, right? If somebody really likes one of those pitchers, pitcher A, let's say A, B, C, D, it's possible that somebody in your league really likes A. Maybe somebody really likes D and they'll jump them up two rounds, but to have all four of them where the ADP is is going to be, if the ADP is 15th round, that means on average they're going to fall there. You might get the 17th round, right? But the probability of having one at the 15th round is very high the more pitchers you have. So I I, I would not just look for a, a pitcher I like. I would look for rounds where I have a few pitchers that I think I can take within a round or two. Uh, Ruvin, anything to add?
1: Yeah, I, I want to add on a little bit what Alex said about one A. We, me, when we draft, me and all right, when we when we draft, we're never really looking at a, a one starter because when, especially in auction, when it comes to a snake draft, you get, you take whatever the value is and you go according to the ADP. But you always look for a. I, we always look for a one A. Meaning you don't need the top guy because in an auction they're going to be overpriced. They're not going to get that return on investment that you really want. But when it comes to a one A pitcher, you're. It's coming that basically the pitching market is coming back to you. You don't have to overpay for something. You can pay. Value or a couple of dollars over the value, and that way you can get two one a's for the price of a one, and that way you get more bang for your buck.
0: Yeah, auction very different with the the pitching for me. In in auction, I might be having devising a plan based on how. ADP is to uh, you know market aAV a- in an auction. I should say is to my values. I, it might look like oh two dollars pitchers, which you really can't do two twenty dollar pitchers in a draft because you only get one pick per round. Um, now I wouldn't say that I go by ADP. Uh, I, ADP for me in a draft is used as a guide for where I think uh, pitchers will go, but I, I don't look at it. When I, when I draft, the first four rounds, I don't look at all at ADP. I take what I think is the best possible player that can help me with the construction of my roster going forward. The only place where I'll use ADP in draft later on is to say, all right, I'm in the eighth round. Do I think I can get away with not picking this guy and letting a few picks come before me? How how close is his ADP to what I think? And if ADP is much lower, you know what I can chance it, and I can pick this other person first, and then that. Yeah, use it as a tool to see if I can wait. But uh, I, I never want to use ADP as a guide. And certainly at the end of draft, the last couple of rounds, you can throw ADP out the window. Just draft whoever the heck you want.
2: Um, anything to add, Alex? Yeah, no. I mean that's that's right. I mean it, you know you're not you're not using ADP to determine. It shouldn't be used as a ranking by any means, but yes, it's, it's, it's less it's less important at the beginning, right? Because you're, you're just going by talent. Um, in the middle rounds, it's interesting, um, but it's very helpful because you, you do have a sense of kind of like a it's, it's probabilistic, right? You, 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 you can have a sense of... Game theory. It's game theory. You, you have an idea of, you know, if, I, if I, I can draft him now 100% or I can wait to the next round, have 14 more picks go by will he still be there? It's probably a coin flip now. So, like, you, you have a better sense of, like, should I be popping a guy early? Should I just be pivoting to a different position? You can make a lot more decisions that way. And, again, like you said, when you get to the later rounds, I mean, the, the, the dollar value equivalent, and I always relate ADP back to dollar value equivalents. Once you get to, like, For sure. the 17th, 18th, 19th rounds, you're talking about the difference between, like, a $4 player and a $3.70 player. And the round after that's, like, a $3.30 player. So, like... If you're thinking about it in dollar terms, if you're willing to spend another thirty cents or fifty cents in an auction, go the extra round. You know, reach for the next guy. You're not going to be an idiot, or it's not going to be embarrassing if you pop ADP early and and reach above ADP. If you really like a guy, because at a certain point at the end of the, at the end of the draft, you're talking about the difference between thirty cents, forty cents, fifty cents, or at the very very end, you know, literal pennies uh, difference between between certain guys and certain yeah. rounds. Yeah. So. Um, 100%, I'm on board with that. I do think my auction strategy is also different in that I am never, right, I'm not trying to get, uh, an SP1, SP2, SP3, SP4, SP5, SP6. I'm a kind of guy who will get, right, I'll get three SP1As, uh, an SP3, two SP6s, who I think will be SP3s, you know? I, my, 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 my strategy is so different, uh, for auction, but I... A lot of people don't play auction, uh, but I'm 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 constantly looking at you. You have to be tracking the prices that other pitchers are going at. So you need to be cost, You need to be vigilant in an auction, knowing who is going at what price. Um, kind of having a sense of there are guys in this kind of tier. He'll probably go for a very similar price. So I'm I'm always calibrating that. You know, if if uh, if uh, if Luis Castillo is a fifteen dollar player. Frankie Montas is probably going to be a $15 pitcher too. So I'm, I'm, I'm always doing that arithmetic in my head, and I'm never locking myself. I'm locking myself even less into certain pitchers, and I'm very more flexible because if the price is right, I think dollar values and auctions are even more volatile than ADP. I think auctions are just a totally different dynamic. I don't know if you guys have the same experience.
0: Sure, sure, uh, absolutely. Everything You can be in two of the same format, and in two different rooms, and have totally two different outcomes. Uh, I mean, that's that's what I had uh, last year in in labor. Prices were not that bad, and I jumped in, and we got some really good good uh, higher-value bar, uh, higher value players in TAT Wars last year. Oh, my goodness, it was way overpriced. I just waited the room out and 17, 16, 15, and just, just did that. So that is true. Um, you know, talking about starting pitchers, um, I had an article a couple years ago that I thought was true for a long time. Uh, it was called "The Case for an Ace," where I showed that, in historically speaking, taking one of the top starters—we're talking, let's say, a top ten starter—had uh, a better return on investment for the longest time. And I think that has been true even in the past couple years. Question is, do you think that's going to be true this year? And I ask that because I see a lot of different, a lot of more risk in the starting pitchers than usual. So I have the uh, ATC inter standard deviation metric, and listen to these values of the pitchers in the first four rounds. Cole at 4.8. That's already a good one. And, by the way, the average is, uh, for players is closer to, like, th- high threes. So Cole is is a little bit on the higher risky side. Burns, 5.2. Bueller, 6. Scherzer, 4. So Scherzer is like a, a low-risk pitcher, if you will. Woodruff, 3.6. Sounds like a not risky. DeGrum 6.4. Bieber, 6.8. I mean, these are very— mu- the riskiness of pitchers seems like it's much higher this year than usual, and it really begs the question, will this hold true? This might be the year that you're better off in drafts not picking an ace and grabbing a fourth-round pitcher and a sixth-round pitcher instead and getting that hitting up instead. What are your thoughts on that this year, Alex?
2: Uh, I mean, that's exactly what I've been doing, so I agree. <laughs> and I think, uh-huh. I think, in addition to the riskiness, there, there's also the added element of there. I think pitching is running deeper than ever before. I mean, I, I, you know, in the past, we, I think, Paul Sporer calls this, um, the glob. What is it? The glob. I call it the minefield, and it's like right around SP twenty to twenty-five through SP forty. You have these pitchers who. Probably had a good year the previous year. People are excited about them. Maybe they don't have a long track record, and they're the they're the kinds of guys like year in and year out that that middle chunk of pitchers just bomb. They bomb, and and this year they're really strong. And, and maybe I'm maybe my biases are are affecting me, and maybe they're going to be bad too this year. But just running so much deeper, you know, we're seeing guys like um, Alec Manoa, um, Shane McClanahan, Shane Boz, um, Charlie Morton, um, guys who are like you know who who have strong pedigrees as minor leaguers and now as major leaguers, or guys with long track records, even Lance Lynn like dropping down to like SP twenty five. I mean, you uh, Darvish at SP thirty, probably a very high risk guy, but also a very talented pitcher. I mean, I think we're just seeing uh, it's running a lot deeper than usual. Luis Garcia uh, on Houston, maybe like SP fifty. I mean, that's a guy that I I'm pretty excited about just from a repertoire perspective. I don't think he's like the next budding ace or anything, but he has a really strong uh, arsenal of pitches, and I think um, you know I, I'm just seeing a lot more depth this year, and it's much more encouraging to me to not force the issue up front. You know, I, I might grab one of those one of those first four or three round aces if if he falls, or you know, if I find myself uh, you know liking the right, if I'm liking the price, basically. Um, I might pull the trigger, but I'm really not trying to force the issue. I really am just taking the best pit, uh, the best player, and I, I feel like a lot of the best players up front right now are, are the hitters, at, at least from uh, a risk perspective and just from a total value perspective.
0: Sure. Ruvane, do you agree with the strategy this year?
1: I completely agree. This is not the year to go Cole with your first pick, which people were doing last year, or DeGrom with your first pick like people were doing last year or the year before. I think that... There's so much risk, and you you rattled off some of the names. You're not even mentioning a, pe- a player like Robbie Ray. He's in he's in the top ten of of the ADP for pitchers, and you know what? He did it, he did this for one year. Is he going to repeat it? It's not just the injury concerns of Degrom and Bieber or the age of Scherzer. All these pitchers have warts, and you know what? So do the pitchers later down, and why should I spend money and possibly lose my return on investment, using that term again, l- 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 lose some of that value there when you can get a hitter? So why don't you wait to the fourth or fifth round? If you wait to the fourth or fifth round, you got names like Glantzlin, like we mentioned before, Max Fried, Kevin Gaussman, Joe Musgrove, Jose Barrios, like you mentioned before, even, or, or Dylan Cease. All these guys are considered, they could be, aces but they're not truly aces. So I guess they'd be like the 1A, and that's what we're talking about. And you can wait the first four rounds and still get one of those guys, and I'll be perfectly comfortable getting one of these quote-unquote safer aces as opposed to the higher-risk pitchers higher up. Yeah.
0: Um, Alex, the NL is going to... uh, I mean, well, nothing's set for sure, but it seems like they're going to adopt the universal DH. Um, Now, projections out there supposedly accounted for that change already. But, you know, that kind of change in your projections is not always that simple because, you know, we're talking about pitchers who've had experience at NL ballparks. There's going to be some type of inflation, I think, even if you try your best to adjust for it. You know, there's no substitute for pure experience, right? Just look at the numbers for what happened is always better, and there's always going to be some kind of mismatch when you're trying to adjust projections for ballparks. Do you think that the projections, as they are now, are going to still overvalue NL pitchers? Meaning, if you had a coin flip between an AL and an NL pitcher, according to projections, you should probably choose the AL one. Do you agree with that statement?
2: Yeah, I guess. I mean, I you know, there's pitching performance is so volatile. Um, it, you know, oh, part I don't want to I don't want to backtrack, but like part of the reason why I also am more comfortable taking take later pitchers is that is that pitching performance. Uh, is more volatile than hitting performance. It's just fewer things are in the pitcher's control. There are there are many things that are uh, in the pitcher's control, but we also see time in and time out, and, and research shows that 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 pitchers are in less control of a batted ball outcome. Um, so as pitchers become more in control of their strikeouts and walks, that's great. But there's still a, a big what if element for sixty to seventy percent of plate appearances, which is a lot of plate appearances to account for. Um, so. Um, from the DH standpoint, you know, we're talking about, we're talking about maybe, well, I mean, before interleague play, it would have been maybe like 7% of the batter's face were pitchers, and now, maybe even less than that, I can't even tell you, it's it's going to be less than, it's going to be single digits, and then, with the introduction of uh, consistent interleague play, it's probably even less than that, so you're talking about um, you know, several points of, of WOBA, you know, weighted on-base average, which is uh, how we should be measuring production. And those, those equate to, to points of ERA, but for such a small number of hitters, um, it, really, it really is not something that I'm going to lose sleep over. Um, I guess if I had two pitchers that are identical, um, but in different leagues, truly identical, but one's AL and one's NL, yeah, I will probably, you know, I will default to, I guess and we're talking about from a projection standpoint, I would say that maybe the AL pitcher is being undervalued, yes. But also, I just can't make that hypothetical because there's really no pitchers who are truly identical. I I haven't found myself at any point in any draft yet being like, well, am I going to pick the AL guy or the NL guy? Um, I think maybe like from an auction standpoint where you have a little more flexibility, you could do that. But I think in a, a, a standard snake draft, you don't really have very many opportunities to have to forced to make that decision which i think is probably very fortunate for us um and even if you're going to i'm someone who's not going to read too deeply into it for better or for worse Uh, i'm not saying that's the correct decision but there's just so much volatility in pitching that i'm not going to let uh you know a few points of era um deter me from someone who i might like from more than more than someone else who might be in a a superior league
0: moving i'll ask you the question this way um is do you ever consider the division that a pitcher pitches in? And saying, "Wow, I don't want to pick a pitcher in the AL East. My goodness!" Or look at that AL Central. That's pretty crappy. Let's put, you know, if if there's a coin flip, take the guy in a certain division. Would Would you consider a division, um, in terms of uh, uh, what whether you would pick a player or not?
1: Not early on. Early on in the draft. When the pitcher has these the, the, the quality pitches and the, and the quality, everything, and it's a good pitcher, I'm not concerned about it. But when you go later on, go deeper into the draft, that's when you start finding these players that are playing in weaker divisions. Like you mentioned, the, the NL Central is not going to be that great this year. The AL Central is not going to be that great. There are a lot of easier teams, um, weaker teams, that that if you want to get a, a, a cheap quality start, you can take a pitcher that's playing the Twins or it's going to play... um. The Reds, if, if on on a, on a bad day or something like that, you, there are teams that are weaker. They are weaker, and I think that we saw that. When we, when we played in 2020, 2020, they just played a lot of games in the division. You saw a lot of outliers of, of how pitchers pitch just in their division. And you saw the differences in the statistics that the teams who played in the, in the in the NL Central, AL Central, some of them had inflated numbers and stuff like that. But when it comes to the DH, we have the sample size of 2020. Yes, it was a short sample size. Yes, people like to throw it out. But when it comes to being equal based on league, People drafted before the DH was known in 2020. I don't think it affected the values that much, so I don't think NL or AL makes really a difference. The vision may, but not AL-NL.
0: Alex, before we go on to talk about uh, some of the ATC undervalued pitchers, just wanted to get your thoughts as uh, you do great work with uh, you know writing about some of these minor league prospects, is there a minor league pitcher who hasn't made their debut yet, or maybe a sleeper pitcher um, pretty low on draft boards that you might think would surprise us that you would uh, urge people to look at in draft?
2: Sure, yeah. Um, uh, a minor league pitcher would be Peyton Battenfield. Excuse me, he's on the Cleveland system. He's actually been traded twice in his very short career, but he is uh, extremely high strikeout, extremely low walk rate. It's, a very, it's very quintessential of Cleveland to be targeting these guys right now who have who have big whiff rates, who have very tidy walk rates, you know, exceptional command. Um, these are the guys that they're really targeting in their systems right now, and, and maybe they're not totally polished. Maybe they're missing, uh, you know, uh, a secondary pitch. Uh, maybe you know, these are the kinds of pitches that are working better at triple a, against triple A hitters than than major league. Uh, I'm sorry, triple A hitters. Excuse me, uh, and not major league hitters, but, but you know, the kind of guys who are who are very polished already in terms of their uh, their the critical elements of pitching and trying to add a little more to that to turn them into viable starters peyton battenfield it looks extremely appetizing in that regard in terms of a major leaguer i'm all in on patrick sandoval this year um you can use the pitch comps tool he looks like a spitting image of uh like a peak not peak but you know like uh, luis castillo uh luis castillo before 2021 where he had a bad year um, so the I think good Luis Castillo the good Luis Castillo right the the, the the ground ball heavy and whiff heavy Luis Castillo um, yeah he looks he looks great and th- that was somewhere that's something where my pitch comps tool clued me into Pat Sandoval because I, I he wasn't really on my radar and I was again ready to dismiss him kind of as like oh you know had a nice small sample um, not like overly thrilled by the peripherals or anything but when I looked at the individual pitch comps I'm like wow I mean this is really I mean, the sinker stands out, the changeup stands out. You know, this is all really impressive to me. And, you know, that late in the draft, he's like SP60 or whatever. I'm willing to take, you know, I, I'll, I'll leapfrog ADP by one or two rounds to make sure that I'm getting Patrick Sandoval. And, and knowing that, like, I, I'm not missing out on a whole lot um, by, by gambling on him later in the draft like that, as opposed to, you know, again, um, taking a, a, a certifiable gamble early on on, on certain pitchers. So Patrick Sandoval is my guy. I'm um, targeting him a lot. If he doesn't pan out, he doesn't pan out, but I'm not gonna again I'm not gonna lose sleep over it because his ADP is, is pretty low right now, especially in twelve team leagues.
0: Yeah. So the questions on those two players. On uh Sandoval, um, why are projections I mean projections don't dislike him, but most projections have him a bit over uh, a four ERA. ATC is one of the low people with a three point nine two ERA, which uh mimics Steamer actually. Um. Why are people as low? Why, why do you think projections aren't taking into account something that you see a breakout with these pitches? And on Peyton Battenfield, uh, is hit? I mean, he, the organization is fantastic for pitching Cleveland. Um, I don't think he's done anything higher than Double A. Do you see his ETA as, as coming up this year at all?
2: Yeah, that's that's the primary issue with Battenfield. I, I actually passed him in a in a DC in a in a draft and hold 50 team draft and hold league. I'm sorry, 15 team 50 50 player draft and hold where i thought i'd be getting him and everything i i, I kind of just realized like you know what i mean he the, the 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 soonest he shows up this year is probably september so um he's someone that you're thinking about for 2024 i'm sorry excuse me 2023 um if you're in a dynasty league you got to be targeting him um i mean he just looks like he looks incredible um especially through his first you know two or three runs through the minors but yes you're right it's it's been low minors he'll definitely start in triple a um Indians don't, excuse me, Guardians, the Guardians, uh, um, they don't have a ton of pitching depth, so it is conceivable that he shows up sooner than later, like maybe in the summer, but I'm not going to hang my hat on that. Um, it's it's possible that we never see him uh, this year at all. It's entirely possible. So I'm not trying to get him too many places, but he is quite exciting to me. Patrick Sandoval, um, you know, I think, I think the biggest blind spot with, with projection systems, is really knowing when to credit or discredit pitchers for their contact quality skills, and there are certain types of pitchers who excel, um, and that's that's primarily based on the pitches they throw and the locations they throw them. Based on you know just kind of like the, the models and the zone analysis that I've done, are, are the sinker guys and the low in the zone changeup guys. That's that's Luis Castillo, um, that's Patrick Sandoval, that's Lance McCullers, that's Framber Valdez. Um, these guys who are getting tons of ground balls. Um, really, you know, it, it kind of goes back to that old adage about targeting guys who are, are, are high ground ball guys. I don't think that's the only way to succeed. But the guys who are the sinker change up combo guys end up performing significantly better than average in terms of managing that contact quality. And if a projection system just looks at Patrick Sandoval and regresses him toward the mean based on a fairly small sample of, you know, batted ball outcomes, like 80, 80 innings worth or whatever in, in, in last year then i think it's going to be underestimating that ability that is probably already you know a, a locked in skill and that's something that again my pitch tool could reveal is you know these these changeups and these sinkers that are similar to his are all good at at, at managing contact so it's just one of those things where like you you again you're providing that external validation of what you're seeing uh, and, and believing it also as opposed to maybe leaning to too much into regressing to the mean, which I think, again, is is something that the projection systems have the hardest time with in terms of the contact quality element, especially because of how volatile pitching can be.
0: Great stuff. On to ATC undervalued players. And on the show here, we list out a couple players that looks like ATC deems as a bargain, and we question whether we agree with that or not. So starting with Jacob deGrum. Who is listed as a bargain here? He is a thirty-four-dollar pitcher according to ATC, and that's just with a hundred and forty-two inning projection. I mean, you understand that if he has, if he's a two-hundred pitcher, this guy is close to a fifty-five-zero-dollar $50, $50, $50 player, uh, which is insane. Uh, Mike Podhorzer, who uh, had a took a bunch of a lot of risk in last night's uh, labor draft. He took Jacob deGrom in the second round and have, had absolutely no problem doing it. I don't think we, we have to argue here whether he's good enough or not. I think the question is more about the innings and whether we want to take the risk on the innings. Let, let's go to Ruvain first because uh, this is an injury-type guy. Uh, what are your best estimates on DeGrum and if the 142 ATC innings projection, does that sound right to you or is it too high or low?
1: I think it sounds a little bit low because he's in a walk year for his contract. He's going to put it all out there. The Mets are not going to hold him back that much. Um, He did mention that the last time he did an MRI, he felt pain because of the position that he had to be in for the MRI, and it made it worse. So whether that's true or not, you take that for whatever that's worth. Um, He is 34 here. He's turning 34 this year. But he only has, talking about mileage before, he only has 1,200 innings on his arm. So that's not crazy. I don't think 140 is out of the realm of possibility. I don't think 150 is out of the realm of possibility. And if they're contending, he's... Uh, he's the type of bulldog pitcher that you want on your roster that will pitch through a little bit just because he wants to help the team. And also, again, it's contract year. I think he's going to push himself a little bit more.
0: Alex, how do you approach these injury types? I mean, certainly with if we had a guarantee that he would throw 180 innings, he should go 1-1 in drafts. Um, what kind of haircut do you need to roster this kind of binary risk? And how do you approach these kinds of injured players where who knows how many innings they're going to have?
2: I think... Um his floor is so spectacularly high I think or just not maybe on his floor but his his per inning value is so spectacularly high that um, you know I think I think I I saw from my numbers that he could throw like 110 or 120 innings as a third round pitcher and break even Um, I think he could very easily hit that Um, for for injury guys I mean I'm obviously following the news the last thing that I saw and try not to read too much into people freaking out about it because I think there's a lot of people who are very sour about um, the prospect of taking ground, but you know he, he you know he missed the whole latter half of last year basically but he was doing bullpens in September and he was already ramping up to 98 so um, that was that was during kind of like his, his rehabilitation uh, kind of part of his recovery and it's gonna be six seven eight months later possibly when when he starts pitching not pitching again but when he starts seeing you know MLB action um, I think it's incredibly possible that he Pitches the entire year. Um, I, I think there are a lot of people who are, you know, sort certi- of, you know, uh, uh, um, justifiably is the word I was looking for, justifiably nervous about it. Um, but the fact that he was, you know, the fact that he can already throw the ball harder than anyone else in bullpens um, as he's kind of rehabilitating is, 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 is really impressive. Um, and it's something that I'm keeping in the back of my mind that, like, I, I think it's possible that he, he kind of shocks all of us. But I'm not going to even bank on that. I could just draft him at his current value, and all I'd need out of him is, like you said, like 120 or 140 innings, and he would be uh, he'd be well worth it at that point. So um, he's definitely in my game plan. He's maybe one of the only early-round pitchers that is interesting to me, despite the risk, because he's so, so high-value uh, on a per-inning basis.
0: So if he's available early third round, is this uh, an Alex Chamberlain pickup?
2: Yeah, 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 and I, that, if I didn't take a, a pitcher in the first two, which I almost certainly won't, so yeah, I think it, I think it depends on the, the the hitters that are still on the board because that's also kind of like Starlin sure. Marte uh, territory. Um, you know, a little bit of uh, like um, who who else is going right around there? There's a couple of nice like. We were talking about the 1A starters, and there's a lot of like nice 1A hitters in the beginning of the third round, the end of the second round, too. So I, I think it would really depend on what my structure at that point looks like. Um, but yeah, he's absolutely in the conversation when, if he's still on the board in the early third.
0: Okay. Let's let's talk about Clayton Kershaw. It's a similar boat, although in many ways a lot more risky because him, he didn't really finish the season all that well, and... um. He doesn't currently have a team, and I'm a little bit puzzled why the Dodgers didn't give him a qualifying offer, didn't sign him. Does that make you nervous for Clayton Kershaw? And he's going in the 13th round. Is is that a gamble? Certainly, I mean, a 13th round player is less of a gamble in some ways than a third round player. Do you think Kershaw at his thir- 13th round ADP is worth it? ATC has him for 123 innings
2: and that's i think that's roughly about how many innings i need him to pitch to break even according to my numbers also so i'm i'm feeling pretty pretty solid about him again he's like sp he's sp54 right now i mean he's he's very very um very low on the starting pitcher list right now and his adp not, might not necessarily be low but again in terms of opportunity cost i mean he's he has to be one of the better values i think you know i've thought of, i've thought about this a little bit and the the qualifying offer thing is weird and i think that team's maybe didn't do it because of the pending CBA conversation because the White Sox didn't uh, offer a qualifying offer to Carlos Rodon, which I thought was really weird because basically they had this guy, they wanted to be their ace. They waited seven or eight years for him to be an ace. He became an ace and will almost certainly make more money in free agency, yet they did not offer him a qualifying offer in order to get that drafted compensation. So I was like, that that is incredibly stupid but uh, there's got to be a reason why the teams weren't doing this and i think it might be because of the cba stuff so anyway i'm not going to read too deeply into that he's going to find a team um it'll be interesting to see where he lands i would love for him to be back in la i just like the idea of him retiring as a dodger um but i you know the short answer is that he um is very much in my my crosshairs in you know whatever round that is i think it's like the the, 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 the 15th round or something where he's still available i mean that's He's going to be a great SP four for a lot of teams, even if he only throws one hundred twenty innings.
0: You agree, Ruvane? Is he a good uh, pick in the fourteenth round?
1: I have some concern for him. Besides not getting the qualified offer picked up, he's thirty four. Also, he's actually three months older than Degrom, but he has twenty four hundred innings on his arm. That's just regular season. That's not just that's not postseason. He still. C- could be elite because even when he was pitching last year before he got injured, he still was elite. But I think I, I'm more comfortable picking DeGrom because you get more value per inning, like you said, Alice. You get more value per inning there, and there's less risk just because he has less wear and tear on the on the arm. We don't know exactly hundred percent what's going on with him at this point, whether the the Dodgers are trying to save money, whether they want to try to maybe lock him up and they didn't want to just they, they didn't want to have to deal with the qualifying offer issue. So I, I'm I'm more concerned about Kershaw than I am about the Grom.
2: Yeah, I think um I, I think that's fair to frame it that way. I also think that the the the, the options at the juncture where Kershaw's available are much less reliable than than maybe some of the options at the top of the draft. And maybe that's not true. But I think you know once you're getting to that deep in the draft, there are guys who are genuinely bad who are going to be drafted. And I, I think having Kershaw on my team and giving me 120 very good innings, almost regardless, I, I'm not very concerned about the talent uh, part of it. But you know if he gets injured, he gets injured. Um, I'm going to be targeting him in shallower leagues, certainly, because it's easier to replace someone like that if they get injured. But I do think... You know, there's a lot of pitchers in that juncture of the draft where I'm not even, they're not appealing to me whatsoever. Um, so I think it's all relative. Is, is I guess is what I'm trying to you know, trying to say here.
0: All right, next one. In continuing with the uh, injury uh, comebacks or injury question marks, Mike Clevenger of the uh, Padres. Uh, I mean, they they traded to get this guy. ATC shows a bargain. ATC shows him at 121 innings pitched, uh, 14th round. So it's in the range of Kershaw. Alex, are you concerned about his health? And between Kershaw versus Clevenger, who are you more interested in?
2: Uh, I'm more interested in Kershaw. I, you know, I like Clevenger a lot. Obviously, before before his injury, I think, you know, pitchers are coming back. Maybe this is anecdotal, but they seem to be coming back better and better from TJ, TJ surgery. Um, you know, I think something like thoracic outlet syndrome is much more um, is much more of a death knell than Tommy John is these days. I think I think a pitcher can have Tommy John surgery, come back, and and possibly pitch to the same level that he did before. It's just that it's just not guaranteed. And Clevenger is is fairly affordable in drafts. He's not like he's not as low as I'd like him to be. Um, he hasn't really been on my radar. Um, like, you know, every time I, I have the opportunity to, to to select him in a draft, um, there's just always better options. Um, so I've never really had to make that decision. I think in an auction, I would definitely be considering him more because there's more opportunity for me to grab him at a price that I, I think is more representative of what of what he might give me. I'm a little concerned that the, the strikeouts might cave or it might be, you know, a slow kind of ramp up um, from. Uh, you know, being off for twelve, sixteen months, or whatever. So I'm, I'm a little, I'm a little cautious about it. I thought he'd be, I thought, I thought the folk, I thought the the community would be maybe a little more bearish on him, but they're, they're not quite as bearish as I thought they'd be.
0: Ruvain, are you at all interested in Mike Clevenger? You're the health guy.
1: No, I actually prefer Kershaw than Clevenger here. Um, Clevenger, he had Tommy John back in November of 2020, and as of September last year, we haven't heard anything since he was on track for his rehab. But the Padres don't have such a great track record when dealing with this, inj- this type of injury, rehab, that type of thing. Just look at Chris Paddock, look at Nelson Lamette. They, I mean, they also met they figured it out, and he became a reliever. Um, but he's uh, Clevenger only threw 41 innings in 2020. He didn't throw innings last year. He's post-Tommy John. Could you expect more than 120 innings from him? At his ADP, you're going to get that value if you're going to get 120 innings out of him. The Padres list him as a number four starter right now, but they have a lot of flux in that starting rotation right now. A the lot of pitchers there don't project to pitch that many innings. So he may be part of the plan he may not just pitch that many innings, and he's not going to pitch that many innings where you're getting them. I would prefer, I would definitely prefer Kershaw than Clevenger.
0: Yeah, I didn't say my opinions on both these pitchers yet, but I'm actually out on both of them. Um, I don't prefer either of them, I, I do not want to take uh, these kinds of risks. Uh, with the innings, I understand Kershaw is going to give you good production, although he's not as good as he used to be. Uh, um, you might get a high threes ERA this year, it's possible. Uh, I don't know what uh, why the Dodgers didn't offer him that, but I have a feeling they'll sign him again. But no, I, I'm not interested in this type of risk. I, I think that uh, you need a little bit more of a discount than even this is going to to take these guys. Um, I'm, I, you know, you 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 don't you you don't have to win a league with these guys, but you could lose a league if you have guys that are going to be your number four pitcher and they're out. I I like winning leagues on volume. I like winning leagues on less risk. And I generally don't like taking the risk at this level with my starters. I want guys to really solidify and give me those innings and those ratios. And I, I don't love taking these risks. DeGrom is very different, though, because DeGrom's level is so above everybody else. And I'm more optimistic about his health um, for some reason. Uh, than than these guys, um, and it's it's funny how Kershaw is really not that much older than Degrom. Everyone thinks of Kershaw as the old man, but Degrom is actually getting up there in age. Also, uh, it's just that he found success later in life uh, than the other. You, do you think
1: you being a Mets fan makes you a little biased behind that? Because I mean that does play into our minds, even though we we try to disconnect from the teams we love to pick the players that we love. But you know it's kind of hard.
0: Um. It doesn't make me more biased about DeGrom, but I have more awareness about DeGrom because I see him more regularly um, and, and we get the, the bigger feel for him. So I don't think it's a bias. I think it's more awareness, if that makes sense. Okay. Um, let's talk about Charlie Morton. Charlie Morton is a tried-and-true vet. I think he uh, has mechanics that remind me of Roy Halliday and Using your pitcher comp tool, Alex, Garrett Cole comes up, John Gray comes up, some decent strikeout people. Um, you know, he's 38 years old, but I kind of think he's a guy that can give you innings, and 162 is doable, and what a tough dude. I mean, he, he, he pitched after he broke that leg. He, he kept pitching on it. Uh, the guy is just bulletproof, and bulletproof means a lot. Uh, I he, he has $25 upside. Uh, I think it's literally just an innings thing, and According to ATC uh, inter Standard Deviation, only a 2.3. Projections really agree on this guy. Um, and he's got a great whip. His whip, 1.6, 1.16 projected. Uh, he had a 1.04 whip last year. To me, this is a really interesting value. Um, going in the seventh round, um, I can see myself taking him somewhere around there. I prefer him not be my number two. Um, but if I'm going the 1A rule, I don't mind him being a high three going 1A, 1A, number three type starter. How are you dealing with Charlie Morton this year, Alex?
2: Uh, you pretty much nailed it. I mean, he to me, he's a 1A. I mean, I, he, he's not maybe not a true 1A, but he's, he's very close. I mean, he's got the strikeouts. He's got very tidy ratios. I mean, aside from just a few bad innings in the shortened season, I mean, he's been one of the best pitchers in baseball for the last probably half decade. Um, so, uh, and, and, you know, he, he broke out in old age. I mean, this is, this is who he is at this point. Um, I'm, I'm less concerned about skills and kind of, uh, maybe not skills erosion, but maybe stuff erosion because his stuff, uh, was probably already maybe in a lesser place to begin with at 33 when he broke out. Obviously he did a lot of training. I know that he, 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 he kind of recouped a lot of velocity and that's been really crucial to his his late career breakout, but I think those are the kinds of things that he will be able to cling to maybe a little bit longer than someone his age. I don't think he's going to give us 185 or 194 innings again like he did in 2019 and 2021, but even if he only gave me 150 innings of a 3.5 ERA or whatever, 1.1 whip, um, 27% strikeout rate, something like that is kind of like what I'm thinking about. Um, Yeah, I love that at SP3, and and I've been drafting as an SP3 for you know the better part of the last half decade because folks have been either reluctant to buy the breakout or then after if they you know accepted that the breakout was real are like oh, okay so he's old now so now now it's an age discount i'm, I'm more than happy to take the age discount and i think there's uh, kind of like the modern the modern landscape of of pitching um uh uh uh, uh, uh you know uh, uh I'm sorry, not pitching coaching, but you know, just like the way that they're developing pitchers and keeping pitchers healthy and, 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 and creating skills um, you know, away from the field, like these driveline kinds of organizations and stuff, guys like Verlander and Scherzer uh, and, and Morton are going to be pitching possibly into their 40s and still being you know, fairly good at what they do. Um, so anyway, that's a very long-winded way of saying that I'm, I'm, I'm excited about Morton as my SP3. I've gotten him a couple of times as my SP3. So it's the perfect spot for me because um, I think he he offers you the upside and the volume um, that you want from someone at that in that spot.
0: Ruvain, how does he compare to another Braves pitcher, Max Freed, uh, who's a uh, slight bargain according to ATC? Uh, He's not a big swinging strike guy, but he did have a nice 26% strikeout rate last year. But, of course, Freed, his best aspect is his high ground ball rate. He's got a career 50 to 55% ground ball rate in every year, and his walk rate is on the low side. So uh, are you interested in Freed? How does he compare to the value per spot that you're getting uh, with Morton?
1: I like Freed a lot better, not only because he gave me his autograph a couple years ago when he was not even anybody, (laughs) but— I'm very comfortable. He's thrown 165 innings twice so far. Last two year last two flu seasons of ERA, 2.25, 3.05, and whips both years of 1.09. So even though he doesn't get you a lot of strikeouts because he does have that crazy ground ball rate, he's an ERA and a whip stabilizer. And he's a perfect two to A3, if you wanted to say something like that. His ADP is around 72 right now. Um I much more prefer him over Morton, but I'm okay with Morton also. So I just prefer freed more. We actually, I actually had some news on Morton. Morton said last week that he's mostly caught up to where he would be normally at spring training, which means that he is fully healthy. So the projections that you say, whatever you say for Charlie Morton, it should be based on a healthy Charlie Morton and that he's fully healed. So that if that helps anybody great, but I still think Max Reed is a little bit better. He's younger. He's, I think, 12 years younger than him, um, but Charlie Morton can have an, quote-unquote, Adam Wainwright-type season because he's done this a couple of years now. A couple of years ago, he wanted to retire, and I think if he wouldn't have gotten injured and he won the World Series, I think he may have retired after the last season, but because he didn't, I think he's going to pitch more, and I think he's going to be just as well good as he was the last couple of years.
0: Yeah, and the lockout actually helps him because a could delay the uh, could let the injury heal even more, and also if there's any kind of innings limit for him because he's older or whatever, uh, less of an issue because it's less of a season, right? Uh, anybody with an innings cap or somebody who might be limited for any reason, either because he's old or young, right? Anybody who just a, a a young rookie who hasn't thrown a lot in the majors, it could help them. That's interesting. I like I like Freed a lot. Um. I'm I li- even though Freed does not get you the strikeouts, I think it's more important in roster construction, especially in a draft, to take a guy with a dependable whip because you can always find strikeouts. You can always throw a two-star pitcher if you've built up your whip in ERA. So I really like Freed. He's much easier to build a nice roster around than most.
2: You agree with that, Alex? Uh, it depends on what your roster looks like up to that point, but I suppose so. I mean, um. Again, I mean, he, he's he's heavily reliant on his contact management, and he's very good at it. So that is a, a bona fide skill of his. Um, you're the you the Kyle Hendricks guy, right? are I'm aren't, the Kyle where, Hendricks guy. That? Yeah, yeah. Frieda's Freed, Freed great command. I mean, there's a reason why he, he's able to run those low ERAs. I don't think he's a 2.25 ERA. I don't think he's necessarily a 3.04 ERA. You know, the ERA estimators are um, are you know relevant for a reason, and they have him. they you know they significantly over overshoot his actual era i do think that the 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 projections are about the same but if you look if you put the projections for for and and morton side by side i mean morton uh is gonna be the better value even with possibly you know 20 less innings but uh you know i i think um i'm indifferent i mean they're both targets of mine so i I don't it's always depending on um the context of everything coming before it um they're both they're both targets for me um and I think just, just to be clear the, the, you know, the inverse of that is I, I go through my drafts before they start and, and kind of like cross off guys that I know I'm not targeting at all kind of thing, guys who you know, if they fall a certain, uh, a certain amount in ADP or, or price or whatever um, and then there's guys who I just like um, kind of regardless or, or I'll go above and beyond their, their AAV or their, AD, their ADP and Fried and Morton are, are, are kind of in that, that vicinity for me
0: all right, next player, Michael Kopech. He had 103 strikeouts in just 69 innings. If he were to pitch 160 innings, just 160 as a starter, that pace would give him almost 240 strikeouts. Well, we know that you can't just scale up numbers, but it looks like a lot of potential there. Um, Michael Kopeck seems like a nice bargain on a very high upside pitcher here. And by the way, if you are playing in those leagues that have SP or RP slots, where you don't just have pick any pitcher, he qualifies in both. So, uh, are you interested in Kopech, Alex?
2: Uh, not really, not okay. really, because I think his I think his his leash on a per start basis is gonna be very short. I think he's gonna be doing a lot of Blake Snellian kind of starts where he's maybe going for if he starts if he starts, and I'm not even sure he's going to be a starter next year or at least start the year in the rotation but um, you know he, he's going to be um, I think we're going to be seeing a lot of four and five inning starts never going six I, I I would be surprised if he does um, and I could be wrong I could be wrong but I'm just not seeing a lot of volume and I'm not I'm not loving that the role is not guaranteed yet um, maybe things are changing maybe I've missed some news but the you know the last I heard was that he quote unquote has to fight for a rotation spot so um, you know if you know if 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 they're making decisions based on talent he will enter the rotation and he will be good um but he's just he's not playing into my plans right now well if he doesn't
0: start games and he comes in as a bulk starter he probably will win more games than if he was a starter and if he ends up being more of a reliever those ratios will be even better so he he could be interesting Ruvain, you agree
1: I think he's more valuable as a middle reliever, as a bulk, as a bulk type inning guy after the opener, only because he also has a history of wildness. In the minors, he was walking a lot of people. Um, as a reliever, he he was averaging three. Three walks per nine innings. Um, as a starter, uh, actually, when, when he started, he actually started eight uh, games so far in his career. He had a 1.26 uh, walk per nine innings, which is different. But I, I think that he's, his problem is going to be his control. Um, and the fact that he threw two miles per hour faster, that as a reliever than as a starter shows why those strikeouts are up. So I'm a little I'm a little bit nervous about those strikeouts, you know, materializing if he remains as a starter. But if he does the bulk in- inning thing, then I'm 100 for him.
0: Before we go on to our next player, it's time for the Injury Gurus Trivia of the Week.
1: Now unintentionally, so far I've been razzing a little bit on the Twins. Now the Twins. They signed Dylan Bundy to anchor their starting starting rotation, which sounds a little crazy, but that's because Kenta Maeda is probably going to miss the entire year because of Tommy John surgery. Dylan Bundy has started a total of 133 games in his major league career. The other four listed starters on the Twins, according to Roster Resource, Bailey Ober, Joe Ryan, Randy Domnick, and Lewis Thorpe. My question today is... How many combined games have those four starters started in their entire Major League career combined?
2: (laughs) Alex? Oh, man. Uh, uh, 23, maybe.
0: Well, I'm not going to price this right and say 24, but uh, I'll go with 32.
1: The the answer is actually 50. Randy Dobnek started 21 games. Bailey Ober, 20. Lewis Thorpe, four, and the next guy we're going to talk about, Joe Ryan, is five. Now, the reason why we're going to talk about Joe Ryan is because during those five starts, his K per nine was 10, he had 1.69 walks per nine innings, he had a 53.9 fly ball rate with only a home run to fly ball rate of 11, which actually may be an issue, but how much stock do we put into this pitcher being drafted where he is with only five career starts in the MLB?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, uh, he had a point seven nine whip last year, which was amazing in those starts. Of course, it was very BABIP-aided, uh, wh- .197. I mean, anything below, like, a two sixty is, ooh, interesting. Uh, that, that's a very low BABIP. Uh, he does not walk a lot of people, uh, 5% walk rate, and it's true for his minor's career. Um, he had a 12% swinging strike rate, and in the minors, it was closer to, like, 15%, so... He's got. He's going to have a very solid K minus BB. Last year it was it was twenty five percent. That's excellent. Uh, I I think that you can't expect um, a, an ERA of under four, especially w- with a lot of fly balls, and the homer fly ball rate will regress. But you know, something a little bit over an ERA of four and. Uh, pretty decent whip. I think you can expect something like around a 115 whip is not too bad. And I love those whip pitchers. And ATC is usually not high on rookie prospects. And ATC is pretty high on him, showing almost a $5 bargain. 15th round ADP, but worth a couple rounds more than that. Joe Ryan looks very interesting, from my standpoint, for the value. Agreed,
2: Alex? Yeah, I have him as like a top... Th- Possibly a top thirty arm on a wow. perning basis, um, not not in volume because you know the volume not necessarily locked sure. in yet. Although I do think, based on what um, Royden said, is that you know that that rotation's in shambles. So um, Joe Ryan could find a lot of innings, I think, um, but without the volume guarantees, um, I think on a perning basis he's probably a top thirty starter for me. Again, this is a, a pitch comps guy for me. I mean, a guy who I came in not really knowing anything about him. It's a it's a bad fastball, although. Um, scouts and maybe just maybe I'm just referring to Fangraphs uh, put a 60 grade on it. So I think Scouts really like the fastball. Fastballs with similar shapes have not performed particularly well. So I, I'm I'm kind of unsure about what to make of that. But but plenty of pitchers have succeeded with bad fastballs. And his slider um, is excellent. And his changeup, which is not really like a big whiff pitch, um, echoes of uh, Kyle Hendricks, um, Zach Davies. Aaron Nola. I mean, these are these are some of the best changeups in the league. So he he definitely has two very good um, secondary pitches and possibly a good fastball. Whether or not he has a good fastball is probably going to be the difference between if he's giving up a lot of home runs or not. And you know, I think I think it's valid to be concerned of the home run issue, and I think that would be born of uh, the bad fastball issue. But the two secondaries and and solid command are enough for me to be pretty excited about him and. The good part about that changeup is it's going to be kind of um, it's going to play the opposite role of that fastball. I mean, it's going to get um, a ton of weak contact. If it's anything like the Zach and Hen- or um, the the Kyle Hendricks and Zach Davies and Aaron Nola changeups that it comps so closely to, um, he's going to have that weapon to to suppress hard contact. It's just that the fastball will leave him vulnerable. Um, but I, I think he he could be like a mid to high three ERA guy with a right, like you said, a solid K minus BB.
1: Is he a guy you're gonna take because he's pitching in the AL Central? Does that play into it? Because he's gonna be pitching against the Indians, which aren't—they're not gonna be that good. He's pitching Guardians. against the Royals, Guardians. so he's gonna get a lot of good starts. You're gonna—he's—he's—if he's not taken right—if he wasn't taken right away last year, he was a waiver wire guy, and people were taking him and and plugging him in for certain starts, especially in that division.
2: Yeah, I mean, I—he's—I think if—I think if the ADP was a little bit higher. I would start making a decision based on that, but I think his ADP is low enough for me to be like, you know, I I, I'm just taking him for the for the talent and, and the prospect of him possibly throwing 140 innings or even more in that rotation. But it's it is a bad it is a bad league, and it's possible that, or I'm sorry, division. And it's possible that that division being so bad will make his fastball play up. I mean, maybe this is a, a perfect situation for him to be in with a bad fastball. Like he couldn't really ask for anything better than to be in the AL Central, frankly.
0: Yep, agree. I think he's worth definitely taking a chance on at that price. Uh, you know, usually you have to pay for some of these talents. This is a pretty low price uh for him. Um moving on to next pitcher, uh last one here for the day, John Means. Um, John Means has shown some really good stuff He's had some great games His whips have been um, remarkable 1.03 whip last year 0.98 whip the year before 1.14 I love these whip pitchers He's got a very low ATC inter SD So projections largely agree on him Uh, In terms of strikeouts, you're not getting that fantastic strikeout rate as others, but again, the whip really helps with other roster construction, always. It helps build up that base of ratios so that later in the year, you can throw in an extra two-star pitcher because you've built up that thing. Now, here's the interesting thing about him that I I can't understand. Um, They announced in Baltimore that—I can't remember exactly when they announced it. I think it was back in maybe November or December— I think December, they announced his his uh, that that Baltimore was going to move the fences back, right? His ADP for the month of November was two hundred four. I would think that for Means, the ADP would have gone up for him, It's a, a better ADP because you know they say, oh, Mountcastle is going to lose Homer. Well, John Means should technically get a little bit better uh, than he was before. And what happened to the ADP? It actually went down. His uh, December ADP two twenty seven, January ADP two twenty two. It's been holding there. February ADP two twenty. So uh, people are still getting a discount on John Means, and I don't see why. I think he's in the fifteenth round. He's a guy who can stabilize your. I guess it's the strikeouts. People love taking these strikeout pitchers, but I look. I I look at the walks. He's got a. F- 4.5 percent walk rate last year. That's phenomenal, and now he's going to be able to limit some more homers. So I'm very interested in uh, John Means, who your pitch tool Alex says is has a comp to both Giolito and Scherzer. So what are your what are your thoughts on John Means, the Baltimore Oriole?
2: Yeah, I like him. I like him. I like uh, the park situation now more. You know, with the whole left field expanding thing, he is he is one of the most flyball oriented pitchers, and and. You know, before we make a, a knee-jerk reaction and, and assume that's a bad thing he he has like uh, if I'm thinking about this correctly and I might have to look at the numbers he, he has either the top three or the number one highest fly um oh, excuse me pop-up rate you know pop-ups as in free out so he he works up in the zone so often um, and and, it, and induces such weak contact at the top of the zone that he um, he's gonna run a low babbitt and he you know he's gonna run into Um, Home runs, that's kind of what Justin Verlander did um, in 2019. Uh, In in 2019, Justin Verlander started pumping fastballs up in the zone. I think his fastball, his four-seamer gave up 25 home runs on its own, 24-25 homers, and he still had a 2.58 ERA. Now, I'm not going to say that John Means is Justin Verlander, but this up-in-the-zone approach with fastballs, getting tons of weak contact, um, getting more whiffs up in the zone, um, that's something that that John Means can do now more effectively with the the walls pushed out in left field. So I think you're not only going to see lower BABIPs, but you're going to see fewer home runs. And um, and right, he's got he's got solid control. I mean, he's not a bad pitcher, and I think folks are. I think there there might be a bias against flyball pitchers because of this kind of false uh, this this false um, kind of assumption that flyball pitchers equals uh, bad and ground ball pitchers equals good, and there's a certain point where you're, you know, the higher your fly ball rate, or the inverse is, the lower your ground ball rate, the more pop ups you're, you're, you're inducing, just, just kind of by virtue of how you know your ball, your batted ball distribution looks. So, um, John Means is great. I like him a lot. Um, I don't want to say great, but he, he's, he's a good pitcher, especially at his ADP and the fact that you know the, the, the new park, and, and and all of that hasn't really changed anything is kind of uh, astonishing. I guess. You know, some of us, uh, Yeah, we, I'm we surprised. ingest news differently because people make knee-jerk reactions all the time, and the fact that this is not doing anything to his draft stock is very interesting to me.
0: I'm very surprised. Uh, Ruvane, do we get a third thumbs up from you?
1: Yes, you do. I like John Means a lot. I think he's actually like a Max Fried light. They're both lefties. Max Fried is a ground ball pitcher. He's a po- And John Means is a pop-up fly ball pitcher. Uh, John Means' his career fly ball rate is 48%. But look at that. But the ERA is not that high, and the whip is, not, is, is pretty good. And the fact that they're moving the fences back a little bit, that only helps them. The only question is how many innings he's going to pitch. Last year, he only pitched 146. He never pitched more than 155 innings before. But besides that... He is, to me, like a Max Fried Light, and if you can get a discount on him, grab him. All
0: right, we'll do a couple of questions here. Um, we have uh, MS asks, and uh, I guess let's do them uh, more lightning style. I'll give this one to, uh, to Ruvain first, actually. Another injured pitcher, uh, or coming back from injury. Verlander seems to be comfortable betting on himself on contract incentives. How far does he need to fall for you to feel the same? So, what's your thoughts on Verlander, Ruvain?
1: I am not touching Verlander, so he's got to fall very far. He hasn't pitched in a while. He, he's in uncharted territory and having Tommy John surgery this late in his in his career. I am all out in Justin Verlander.
2: Agree, Alex, or no? Yeah, yeah, he's just not been a target for me. And, and kind of the Clevenger issue, you know, I just I'm, I'm cautious about the Tommy John situation. I'm even more cautious because he's old, and I, and I understand that he's he's in uncharted territory himself by being this old and this effective um, for the most part, but um you know, it, this is just this is, this is is a lot of risk to be taking on um, at that juncture in the draft.
0: Kevin asks How would you rank Joe Ryan, Mike Clevenger, Aaron Ashby, Casey Mize, and Drew Rasmussen for 2022? Or how about for Dynasty? We're not really Dynasty guys here. Uh, but a uh, quick answer on a quick ranking, uh, Alex?
2: Sorry, say the names again. It was Joe Ryan, Ryan Mike Clevenger, Aaron yeah.
0: Ashby, Casey yeah. Mize, Drew Rasmussen.
2: Uh, pretty much in that order: Flip, Mize, and Rasmussen. Ashby is interesting. Um, I'm not. I'm not sold necessarily on the skills yet. And again, that's a pitch comp revelation for me. I think he is interesting. I know that the AAA skills or the AAA stats were very. uh, They're pretty eye popping actually, but um, the the pitches themselves don't comp overly well. There is some promise there. Clevenger has. Possibly a higher ceiling. It's just he's more of a risk. So I think those are maybe those two are interchangeable. I just don't know if Ashby falls into innings this year um, in, in in the rotation as much. Um, Rasmussen's also an interesting arm, but um, was much better in relief than as a starter. And I think people see him as a starter where I you know I don't think he's going to necessarily play up the way he he did in relief. And um, and Mize being the worst of the the five just doesn't have uh, much at all in, in the way of tools uh, despite his pedigree.
0: We'll do one more. Murad asks, question for you and your guests. What is your blind spot when drafting a team? I know you like to draft values, but how do you balance between values and high upside players? By the way, just to elaborate on the blind spot, I'm referring to your weakness or things you've never considered before but are coming around to it recently. As an example, I'm now opening, I'm now open to picking a closer pretty high up this year, which I've never considered before. Thoughts, Alex, on a blind spot?
2: Oh god! I mean, my blind spot is typically just being too locked into a specific strategy, um, or or locked into certain players at certain rounds. Because I, you know, I do have my targets, and I do have guys that I like. I do have guys that I'm trying to avoid. Sometimes that that can that list can become a little too narrow in some spots, and I think it it, it ends up reverberating throughout your draft. So I this year I've been trying to be a lot more flexible. i really just trying to force myself to. Um, not feel that bias of my targets and still at most points, just take the best pit, the the best, excuse me, the best player that's available or the best player that's available for my current roster construction and not try to force the issue of fit this target into this current roster and see how it works. Moving. You have a blind spot.
1: Believe it or not, I think it's taking injury guys too early. I, I think I give p- some, uh, injury guys too... People who are injured too much credit when they come back. I think they're going to get more value than I really think so. Last year, I th- I think we had Del Nelson Met on all of our rosters. That screwed us over. Um, we, we, we take these guys toward the middle to the end of the draft, and I'm a little nervous and hesitant about taking them. That's why I don't want anything with with a whole bunch of different players coming back from injury. Some of them, yes. Some of them, no. But I, I need to see proof before I can take him.
0: Yeah, um b- blind spots are usually blind for me. Um
1: yeah, I mean,
0: uh I I think maybe a blind spot I have is uh in pitching. Uh I'm definitely I used to be really good at drafting the pitchers. Uh I've studied quite a bit more on the hitting and I think I do a better job now and I haven't gotten into myself yet into the level of pitch detail like you uh, like you have, uh, Alex, uh, or some others have, uh, uh, Nick Pollock, and they know the ins and outs of this slider's working, this changeup's great, and they're mi- changing the pitch mix. I haven't really gotten deep into doing that, and that's definitely a blind spot that I have. And I'd say maybe um, prospects. I don't really know prospects, and uh, that, that is one, too. Ruben, quick injury update. Go for it.
1: Okay, I got three players I'm going to throw out here. First of all, Matt Allen, who is a pitching prospect for the match. He had a second surgery on his right elbow last month. He is not expected to pitch this year. DJ LeMay, who said last week that he is fully healthy from October Sports... So, uh, her, uh, surgery for sports hernia, so he's good to go. And this is bad news. Josh Jung, who's a top Rangers prospect, is expected to be out six to eight months after arthroscopic surgery to repair a torn left labrum that he injured in the weight room. This means that Eiser Kainer-Falefa Kinefale- will see more time at third base for the Rangers. Alex, been a really great show.
0: Thanks so much for coming on. Um, before you go, can you just tell us where we can all... Find you, reach you, read you, and all things Alex Chamberlain.
2: <laughs> um, yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. It's always a pleasure. Um, I uh, am on Twitter at Dolph Haldhagen. Um, I'm not going to spell it. If you find me, you've earned it. Um, I uh, write sparingly at Fangraphs. Um, you know, I, mo- I, I, I keep the, uh, the pitch leaderboard. I also have my pitch comps tool. Um, if you find me on Twitter, you'll find links to those as well. But, um, you know, give you a little bit of homework. Don't try to find me. Sounds good. Ruven?
1: You can follow me on Twitter at MLB Injury Guru, where I'll tweet out injury updates as they come, and they should be coming more frequently as the lockout hopefully comes to an end. I will also have a weekly in season article with Rotobar discussing all these injuries and other injuries, and next guy up.
0: Yep, Alex, we will post on our, our site here your uh, Twitter handle, as we do for most people. So there we go. <laughs> uh You can look it up if you want the challenge, but uh, you can also look at our site here. I'm Ariel Cohen. ATCNY is my Twitter handle, the shortest Twitter handle in all of fantasy baseball. I beat Spore by a letter. Um, you can read my stuff over at Fangraphs, over at Rotoballer, and ATC Projections are up there, as well as CBS Sportsline. And, of course, you can listen to me right here on the Beat the Shift podcast, each and every week. All right, once again, thanks so much, Alex Chamberlain, for coming on the show and from all of us here at Beat the Shift. We'll see you next time.
1: Thanks for listening to the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangress. Follow us on Twitter at Beat underscore shift underscore pod.